Hello and welcome to Real Talk for Mums. Two personal trainers coming together through birth trauma to bring laughs, tears and a lot of real talk around the health and well-being of mums. Unedited, raw and unapologetically ourselves, Mags and myself, Lara, aim to empower mums with the knowledge and support they deserve to live their best lives. Come join us for a new episode every week. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I have Kate with me. Kate Kripke. You don't don't you worry because you are not alone, girl. It is Kripke. Kripke. And I have to do with my surname. Everyone's asking how to. What's your surname? Oh, Jazza. You say it. Jazza. Yes. Now I feel like I'm okay with mispronouncing your name too. So. See, we're two peas in a pod. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, we're very lucky having surnames like that. Well, thank you for joining me. You are evening time where you are um, compared to us in Australia. So I appreciate you spending your evening with us. Happy to do it. (laughs) I love doing these conversations. So thanks. Yeah. Because you've done a few podcasts, haven't you? And you've got your own. I've got my own and I have been on a really lovely podcast um, journey. I've been on probably 25 or 30 other podcasts that people have hosted. And it's literally one of my favorite things to do is to have these conversations. Yeah. um, I'm grateful to be invited. Oh, brilliant then. Yeah. Yeah. I love the podcast too. It's just great to chat to new people. I agree. It's like one of the best parts of our job, right? Is that we get to just learn new things and meet new people. Exactly. And this topic is brilliant and why I reached out to you. In fact, my sister-in-law shared your post with me from someone who had shared your post as well. So I went back to the original source, which was you. And then I reached out and was like, I don't suppose you fancy doing an episode with me. And you just replied really quickly back saying, I would be honored. And that was just brilliant. So Kate, I would let you introduce yourself because I I won't be able to nail it as well as you. You know you best. So please introduce (laughs) yourself. Okay, so I am a licensed clinical social worker by training. I have been working as a mental, a maternal mental health specialist. So as a psychotherapist in the field of maternal mental health for 20 years, I founded a clinic here in Boulder called the Postpartum Wellness Center. Really, my um, the love for this work began when I was really looking at that early, early transition into motherhood, pregnancy and postpartum. And, you know, we know I know you guys call it postnatal and we call it postpartum. Well, I call it postpartum because when you look it up, postnatal is to do with the baby and postpartum is to do with the mother. Well, interesting. I might be wrong. Well, I don't know. In the United States, we'd call the first year after giving birth that postpartum year. That's when a mom is postpartum. Wow. Okay. Um, Because I always think every mom is a postpartum mom. Yes. Yeah. Right. But technically, and this doesn't really matter, except it's an interesting kind of container that first year between childbirth and 12 months when your baby turns 12 months old, one year old is considered your postpartum year. So your postpartum for that entire 12 months after giving birth. Okay. 
And what I think is so interesting about that stage of time is that it is, first of all, I mean, I don't know how deep you want to go into this and we can dabble now and come back later, but like the, the, the really we look like what causes postpartum depression and anxiety is really a beautiful chaotic storm between hormone shifting in a woman's body that impacts brain chemistry and external stress. So, you know, so many women, statistically, we say one in five. I actually think it is higher than that. I think many of us still don't raise our hand to say we're struggling because yep. of the shame and blame, fear of blame around that. But it really, we, we give birth and then we're, our brains are less resilient to stress. And then you take all the biological, psychological, and social stressors that happen when you become a mom for the first time. Yep. And there is this opportunity to become really kind of inundated with experiences of anxiety or depression or both. And it's a really complicated time for most women. And so I guess all of that is to say that really my, my work started there. And then over the years, I sold that clinic last spring. Now I do my work virtually so I can meet women like you and do work everywhere. But I think what's so interesting is that a lot of women don't reach out for support in those early, that early first year. And so the tendency or the kind of the, the potential for anxiety or depression follows that mom into those years after that first birthday. Right. right. And so then you, you they just continue to build. And so it's never too late to get support, I guess is my point. You don't have to get support in that first year. It's never too okay. late. Okay. Oh, that's brilliant. And it's so true. That first year is crazy. And it the hormones don't obviously help, but especially when you've you've just had a baby and maybe you you haven't had a baby before and then you're dealing with all of that. And then it's the fear of, especially as we're talking about the high achieving women, uh, not reaching out for help. Um, from my point of view, when I had my son four years ago, I was had postpartum depression. I didn't know, but I, I didn't want to reach out for help because I I worried that someone was going to take my baby away from me, thinking right. that I was a bad mother. So it's like That's put on right. your put on your face, like you're, you everything's That's perfect. Right. Uh, don't talk about the things that are going on. There is no new motherhood slash motherhood, but there's we're talking about there is no new motherhood without immense amount of uncertainty, immense amount of unpredictability, and extreme discomfort, physically, spiritually, mentally, socially, you name exactly. it. Exactly, right? every level. And at every level. And so I think many women, many of us are caught off guard by that. And so we expect ourselves to know what to do or to figure it out or to feel those feelings that we've told ourselves we're going to feel when we finally become mothers that are like all the blissed out stuff that we yeah. set ourselves up for. Right. And, and then it's not that we don't have those moments. Most of us have some of those moments, but when we're inundated by the other moments, we think there's something wrong with us or our babies or whatever it is. And that's where we can get kind of caught in that cycle of despair. And so really we're talking about how do we learn to bring together 
the inevitable, I'm going to say these words again, I'll probably say them 27,000 times in this interview, but unpredictability, uncertainty, and discomfort. How do we make room for that as in our role, in our lives as moms? Because we can try to plan ahead or control for that because we don't know how to sit with those things. And it's like a game of whack-a-mole right? There, those three things are just going to keep popping up for us. So that tends to be, in my experience, working with women in this capacity for 20 years, that tends to be really the fuel of anxiety and depression, but I really mostly specialize anxiety in, in for anxiety in mothers, in, in, in women in motherhood is sort of like, oh, I can't figure that out. I can't get ahead of that. I mm. should know what to do. And we don't know what to do most of the time. Yeah. And you're constantly chasing yourself. You feel like you're just in this whirlwind of uh, life, motherhood, life, yeah, roller coaster. Yeah. And man, a lot of us like to feel more organized than that. Mm-hmm. We like yeah. to feel like we got our ducks in a row, right? Yeah. That we've or we everything. feel like we should have our ducks yeah. in a row. That's right. Uh, yeah. We should ourselves a lot. And then add into the fact that so the hormones and all of this stuff happening with the first year, we have the pressure of trying to get our body back. You know, six week mark, time to exercise, get your body back. This is what's needed, even though you're still in that haze of one year of craziness. Add on top of the fact that you don't have a community anymore and you're meant to do it yourself. You're meant to be everything to everyone and still have your shit together. That's right. It's a setup. It's a setup. I mean, I have now, I now talk about it very differently and I will say this from the rooftops. I will say if a new mom, if a mom, it's not, we're not talking about new mom, Mm. any mom, any stage, if a mom is not well enough supported biologically, psychologically, and socially, she will develop symptoms of anxiety and depression. It's not, she might, right? Mm. So we can be like, well, that happens to other women, but not me. But if we're not well enough supported in those three areas, we will struggle. And then Mm. you can add, you know, I've started to add spiritually on top of that. And I don't mean necessarily religion, although, of course, there can be an overlap. But that to me, spiritual health is uh, purpose and meaning, right? Being a part of something bigger than ourselves. If we're not supported in that capacity, we're also likely to struggle with depression and anxiety. And so I think... You know, it's like we get this first big rumble, this big kind of earthquake when we become mothers for the first time. And then there are all these phases through motherhood where we can lose our way in those biological, psychological, social, and spiritual health. And we will struggle. You know, I think to your point, and I know we're going to jump into sort of this idea of high achieving, but should I, should I, you want me to talk about the definition of that now? You want to jump into that term right no, now? No, I actually love what you're go, where you're going with this because um, yeah. I was going to pick it a bit more yeah. into it. Yeah, so they're they're overlapped, right? But it's interesting because I think those of us who expect ourselves to not need help and support in those areas, we expect ourselves to be, you know, healthy and well you know, self-reliant and independent and individual. We don't need people. Those Mm -hmm. of us who have those expectations of ourselves are likely to find ourselves in some emotional, psychological trouble in motherhood because we're not meant to do it alone. Yeah. And that's where it is. And I, I'm just, everything that you're saying is resonating with me a lot because I, I categorize myself as a high achieving woman and 
even me asking for help from my husband, who is my teammate in this game of motherhood, parenthood, I struggle with that as well as because it seemed in my head, it's like a weakness, even though logically I know it's asking for help and that's fair. But deep down, I'm like, well, why can't I do it all myself? You know, I should be able to do all of this myself. They're my children. (laughs) So I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you what the belief you have about yourself or motherhood is that leads you to that feeling that you should need to ask for help. What's the belief? How would you articulate it? And because I've been doing some work with myself around this and I, it's that thing of, well, he's bringing in the money. So I have to hold up my end of the bargain by looking after the children and doing the food and making sure everything's running smoothly in that way. He's bringing in the money and he's doing his job. So I need to make sure I'm doing mine. So if I ask for help when it comes to my side of the work, then that's not fair. So is see, the belief- even talking about it is crazy. Well, it's, I mean, it's unhelpful. Mm. it's also very common. You are, there are a bunch of women listening to this episode right now, nodding their heads, right? Mm -hmm. But it almost sounds like the belief you have, I'm curious, tell me if this is, this might not be accurate, but the belief you have is that quote unquote, good mothers shouldn't need help from Mm. other people. Yeah, potentially. Or if I'm, if I am asking for help, that means that there's something wrong with me and I'm not doing my job Yeah, as a good mother. Definitely. And again, logically, that doesn't make sense to me because I'm, we're in this together. Human. Because you're also human. I'm I'm human. (laughs) I'm sleep deprived. I need, like, you have a right to have help. And I know sharing it with my sons that it's, it's good to ask for help. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. And I preach it but deep down I'm still acting I'm still dealing with that even though I'm testing myself a lot more by asking for help and doing the things that make me feel uncomfortable I have a really strong opinion about this which Mm -hmm. I will share which is that most people most humans tell themselves I just have to do something different to feel better. So in this case, it might be, I just need to be willing to ask for help to feel better. Mm-hmm. I just need to be willing, right? So we we, th- we think, okay, I don't like how I feel. I'm feeling burnt out. I'm feeling exhausted. I'm feeling really resentful of my husband that I'm doing all the, right, whatever, all the things people might feel, right? I'm feeling alone in this. I'm feeling, right, unappreciated, whatever. I, so I don't want to feel this way. So therefore I'm going to do something different. I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to take more time for myself. If that person still has a little bit of a belief inside of them that good moms don't actually need help or there's something wrong with me if I can't do this all by myself. If that belief isn't addressed the mom may ask for help once or twice and then be like, forget it and just go back to the way she was, right? The woman may. So I think this is where it gets interesting. And this is where we creep into this high achieving piece, right? Because I think those of us who consider ourselves women, who consider ourselves high achievers, and we can talk about what that means from my definition, 
really have some real limiting beliefs. And I'm going to call them limiting beliefs because I think they get in our way of actually our fullest potential um, in life. But we have these limiting beliefs that have to do with success, meeting goals, achievement, not just the act of those things, but the way those things interplay with our definition of self. Mm -hmm. So if I don't meet my goal, if I'm not successful at that thing, if I don't achieve that thing, there's something wrong with me. That tends to be the perspective that a lot of us who are high achievers bring into motherhood. And that's a recipe for a lot of anxiety. Right. It's a hundred percent. And even when you're talking about it, and I know the term limiting beliefs, um, but the other thing is as well, still feeling like I should also be earning my own money as well, because I can't spend money because I'm not earning it, even though I'm, I'm doing other things like (laughs) bringing up children and the household it's that as well so trying to earn yeah and to me again I mean don't you don't get me started we can have a whole (laughs) coaching session I got you girl but of course to me the limiting belief in that might be if I'm not making money I'm not worthy Mm. right and my those are my words not yours but so it may have it may be different but a flavor to that that if I'm not making money then I'm unworthy to a b or c x y or z right and so yeah, I would call that a limiting belief for sure. Yeah. Right. That enough of coaching me, or even though I would love that, I would love just a coaching session and people could just listen in. Um, maybe another one, maybe another one. We could episode. do that sometime. Those are pretty helpful because here's the thing. We can all relate to each other. Mm. There's nothing you're saying right now that a gazillion women out there can't relate to. Yeah. So I think that's one of the beauties of conversations like this is that we can bring into the light the things that we're all struggling with in the darkness all by ourselves, thinking there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. Right. And most of us can all relate to what everyone is saying. Exactly. Right. Talk about the definition now from your point of view, why you what you consider a high achieving woman. Yeah. I get this question all the time. And um, uh, I, I, I'm going to tell you my definition and then I'm going to tell you a funny story about this. So um, my my the way I would define a high achieving woman is a woman who sets high expectations for herself, that tends towards per- perfectionist thinking, that has a ambition or a focus on achievement and success as a mark of her, uh, her, um, worthiness, right? So many high achieving women go into really incredible careers, right? They, they are, you know, it's really hard to have a career where you're making a lot of money or changing lives or, you know, a thought leader or getting up and sharing your voice. It's hard to do that if you're not also a high achiever, right? Because those things require a lot of drive towards success, right? But someone can also be a high achiever and take all of that to their fitness or their, body image or their artistic endeavors or their their caring of the home or raising children, right? So high achieving doesn't necessarily mean career-driven. 
it can, but it doesn't necessarily. But really the def- the distinction for me is that women who are high achieving women are women who are working hard because of the feeling they need when they hit that mark of success. They're success driven. They're not doing it for the experience of it necessarily. They're doing it to be successful. And if they don't reach their goals, that somehow means there's something wrong with them. I hope people are listening to this because this is just gold. I mean, it's just me you're talking about here, but I'm, well, I'm sure a lot of other You people... and me both, girl. I mean, that's what <laughs> yeah. I spent my entire life working through on my own. Uh, and I and I know where it comes from for me. And I really am. I've got two teenage daughters and I'm really committed to walking through the world differently on behalf of them so that I don't pass that down to them because it is exhausting. And we live in a lot of shame and guilt and anxiety this way. The funny story is that I was, um, I have my own podcast and I was recording a podcast with my co-host, Deb Rubin, who's also a therapist. And we were talking about this topic and she was looking at me funny. I was like, what's happening? She's like, I just don't relate. And then she says, does this mean that there's something wrong with me, that I can't do great things in the world. And of course, my po- the point is we all have our story around this, but there's many people like Deb didn't struggle with postpartum anxiety. Anxiety is not her thing. And that's the difference. You know, you can be someone who really um, is very successful in life and does amazing things that are worthy of feeling really good about yourself and not have your sense of self based on whether or not you are successful at that thing, whether or not you achieve that goal. That's the distinguishing factor. Our sense of self is so tied up in the success that it, that if we're not careful, we're going to be fueled into a lot of anxiety because of that. So unless, so you're saying is those sorts of people are fine in that they have set their goals, but they don't mind if they don't achieve them. It's just the enjoyment of doing it. Yeah. Or that rolls off their back a little bit more. Right. Mm. So like for Deb, you know, if Deb says when we were, when we had raised babies together and if Deb was like, okay, so, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get these work things done today or today I'm going to clean the house or today I'm going to whatever. And then, you know, can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, please. All shit hits the fan because your kid gets sick or whatever happens. Deb might be like, oh, well, didn't get to that today. Whereas one of us who really are driven by reaching our goals and meeting our goals might be might, might be thro- so thrown off by our inability to meet that goal that now we're feeling anxious, right? Okay. Mm. So I have those days. Some days I'm like, okay, whatever, didn't happen today. Other days, like yesterday, I even did a Facebook Live talking about it. I was like, today I couldn't, I shouldn't have even woken up. I achieved nothing today. (laughs) That's right. And that's an interesting statement because if you and I, if if I had been talking to you, I'd be like, wait a second. So you're telling me you literally stayed in one place and didn't (laughs) move all day because I'm sure you achieved all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But again, we're really we're really going in circles here, but, but the, the women who I find to really struggle with most anxiety in motherhood are those whose accomplishment of those goals, what they achieve is directly correlated to how they feel about themselves. Yeah. I'm leaving that as a pause so people can hear that. 
Okay, let's go into these four reasons why high achieving women struggle with anxiety after having babies. Great. And I will just say as a preface for your listeners, this post went viral, viral. I saw the amount of comments you had from that in the thousands. Almost 2,000 comments, uh, 1,270. I I rounded up by 1,000, 1,200 (laughs) comments, almost 1,300 comments. And what's so interesting about this is there's not one comment in there that's negative, meaning every single one of those comments was coming from someone who said something to the effect of, I have never felt so seen in my entire life. Mm -hmm. It resonated for people. And so, yeah, I'm glad you're bringing it up because it's worth talking about. Here's the first one. We thrive when we are in control. By the way, I write this with we because I am one of these women, right? I've really needed to do my own work to be able to support the women I'm working with. We thrive when we are in control and there is there is so much about motherhood that is not in our control. Mm, so true. And actually, when we were st- when we were talking briefly before, you shared the two the only two things that you can have control over, which blew my mind because then I started looking at things very differently after we had our chat. <laughs> you remember what they were? Yes, um, our thoughts and our actions. That's right. So feelings are autonomic that means they're just are they're physiological they're a response so and 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 you know i think one of the things that people try to control is how they feel and so when they feel something unpleasant they will shame themselves or shove it down or distract or themselves shame others if they feel triggered i've that's been right. offended then that's, that's the right. other person's fault who offended them, not deep down. There's some inner work to do because you were triggered for some reason. That is exactly right. Now, it is true that we can have we can choose what to do with our feelings. So then we go back into the action and thoughts, right? But the only two things that we actually have control are our own thoughts and our own choices, our own actions. And we act as if We can control other people's feelings, other people's thoughts, other people's opinions, other people's actions, whether those are our babies or our children or our partners or our colleagues or our friends or our own parents. And so we put all this effort and energy in trying to control how other people feel, how other people think about us, what other people do. That again, it's like a game of whack-a-mole, right? We are, we just exhaust ourselves. We put all of our energy out there. And then the more we try, the less in control we feel. There's something really interesting to know about control. And this is sort of a clinical term, but I'll use it. The word is agency, right? And what we, agency means choice and control. When we have agency, when we have a sense of choice and control, our sympathetic nervous systems, our parasympathetic nervous systems turned on, rest and digest. We feel grounded. We feel settled. We feel safe, right? When we have an experience of lack of agency, lack of choice and control, our sympathetic nervous system turns on, fight and flight and freeze, right? Fight and flight tend to be where anxiety lives. Freeze tends to be where depression lives, but fight and flight, right? So we as moms want to feel in control. We try to control all those things outside of us that we don't have control over. 
we feel less in control, right? So now our nervous system is more in fight or flight. So we try to control more. So we feel less in control. And that is that cycle of anxiety that I think many, many, many high achieving women find themselves in, in motherhood. Mm. Yeah. Number two. Number two. We feel most comfortable when we are organized and motherhood is chaotic and messy. Yeah. So <laughs> also a little bit of whack-a-mole, right? Meaning we're like, okay, I'm just going to clean the kitchen and then I'll feel better. And we clean the kitchen and then we turn around and something is spilled over here. Right. Or, <laughs> right. You know, that, that is that mm, unhelpful and exhausting tendency to be like, okay, I just need to organize things outside of me and then I'll feel better inside. I noticed doing that when I'm, yeah, when I'm feeling like on high alert, if I've had a really bad night's sleep and I'm feeling on edge, I'm like, right, let's clean the house. Let's feel like I can do something. And then I'm just, you can see my husband just in the background going, okay, I'm just cleaning. It's like, and then you get annoyed because a child makes a mess all the time, which you can't control, which they do. They make mess and that's okay. But then you're like chasing your tail and you feel like you haven't achieved anything all day because all you've done is clean constantly. These first two are really great examples of what I said earlier, right? Which is that motherhood is inherently messy, unpredictable, uncertain, and uncomfortable. And that tendency that you have, that I have, that many women listening have to get up and clean so we feel better is the experience that we do when we don't know how to sit with that discomfort. Uh We try to get up and do something so we don't have to feel that discomfort. Same with the control. Mm. I got to get up and control something because I don't know how to sit with this feeling of not having control over what's happening next, unpredictability and uncertainty. So how do we make sure that we don't repeat this with our children and so that they are able to sit with their emotions? We listen to podcasts like this Uh (laughs) and we ask ourselves the really important questions. What would it look like for me to learn how to stay steady in those moments of discomfort so that I didn't have to get up and do something so that I didn't have to feel this way? And that is an important question. You know, the other question I ask women, my clients to ask themselves all the time, which is really painful and really brave and really empowering is what part am I playing in the things that aren't working for me? Not where is it my fault? Where is it my fault that the house is so messy? Where is it my fault that I'm always feeling so anxious? That's not the question we're asking. What part am I playing in the things that aren't working for me is a way to ask ourselves again, where do I have choice and control? And where can I put my energy there versus feeding into things that I don't have any control over, right? So, you know, it sort of goes into the next one, which I'll read in a second. But, you know, there's this idea that um, our if our children are uncomfortable, chaotic, distressed, tantruming, whatever that is, right? 
that's, and again, we're talking about high achieving moms, that that's a problem, that somehow their feelings are problematic. And I have to now do something to get them to not feel that way. Yes. And, re- it, and re- yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I spoke, to, I've been doing some work on that because I don't want to repeat stuff that I'm ho- doing on my sons. And yep. I remember talking to someone who does behavioral specialists with children and she said, tantrums are good. They, they're bringing up the emotions, let them. And then I was like, okay, so I'm not meant to just pander to them and give them everything that they want so that they don't go through a tantrum. And you know how freeing that was knowing that it's okay for him to have a big emotion. I was just like, okay, cool. I don't have to try and walk on eggshells to make sure that he never has a tantrum again. Not only is it okay, but it's mentally healthy, right? Because one of the definitions of mental health is that our internal experience matches what's happening externally, right? So, you know, if someone takes your toy, you're gonna feel really angry and disappointed. Hmm. And little children don't have the frontal cortex to think through how to manage that. They're just going to express their anger and disappointment. And so it's entirely appropriate that little kids have big feelings. But then in society, it's frowned upon. You see people like, especially when I've been out in a shopping mall, for example, and I can handle it now, but Monty was just flipping out on the floor. Understandably, he was hungry. He was, it was a big shopping mall. It's overwhelmed. And I just sat on the floor with my other son, just waiting. And then you have these people walking past going, oh, she's not doing anything. This is like, can I help? Like, what's going on? I even had someone follow me out and say, is he okay? Because he's, he's making a lot of noise and it, you know, it's, he shouldn't be doing that. I was like, I wish I had seen you in the grocery store. I would have gone on set down next to you and been like, mama, (laughs) I have been there. That's what you want. You just want someone to sit with you and just be like, just wait it out. Now, we're not going to get into boundaries. Obviously, boundaries are a part of parenting as well. And sometimes we need to be like, okay, kiddo, it, you've been here for 20 minutes. We got to get up and go, right? So, I mean, there's there's so much both and here. And of course, I, I think when it comes to tantruming, and this again is going back to something that we're not very good at in general, this discomfort is we often want our kids to stop tantruming so that we don't have to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's it. Bang on. Right. And so now we're back to imagine if you knew how to take care of yourself when you were uncomfortable. So you didn't need your kids to do something different so that you didn't have to feel so uncomfortable, whether that's a full blown tantrum because they're at that age or be, or if it's, you know, being disappointed or angry or whatever it is, right? It's like, yeah, as parents, we actually need to really learn how to stay steady within ourselves in those hardest moments. The next one, ironically here, is we tend to live in certainty and all or nothing thinking. Mm. And certainty is rare in motherhood. And most of what happens is in the gray or the both and, right? And it's almost like we want to be like, well, if I was a good mom and I knew how to parent my child, then my child wouldn't have a tantrum in the middle of the grocery store. Right? Exactly. Good luck with that. Because the both and is 
I am a good mom and I handle distress as best as I can in the moments with what I've got. And my kid is his own little human. And when he feels something, he feels it big and I can't control how he's feeling. Right. And I think those of us who are high achievers tend to think in all or nothing rigid Mm. ways. Yeah, definitely. There is no gray. (laughs) It's hard. And of course, our nervous systems love the gray. Our nervous (laughs) systems love the both and that you heard that that person said to you, the person who you, I can't remember who you said it was, who said, oh, the said, no, you know, it's great. You tantrums are good. They're healthy. There is a both and. Tantrums are incredibly uncomfortable to parent mm. through. And they're good. They're they're valid. They're meaningful. They make sense, right? They're, they are very testing, but also they you do learn so much about yourself being a parent. Yes. That's right. Our kids are there to teach us. And I think those of us who tend towards being high achievers, our kids are there to teach us that needing things to be just so, needing to achieve our goals and be quote unquote successful at things and not fail and get it right and know the answers is not possible. And our children are going to be like, they're like little signs from the universe to be like, oh, mama, you got some work to do. I'm in a hearing. (laughs) I'm here to just make sure you do that work. So true. So right. true. Oh, let's the fourth one four. is, yeah, we like to get shit done when we want to get it done. And motherhood is totally unpredictable. And so these are all, of course, so interconnected, right? It's like, okay, my plan is to sit down and get some work done or clean the house or get that workout in or go see a friend or, you know, whatever it is. And we can't predict what is happening when we have little people that in our lives. And so, um, If we are rigid and think of our sense of self based on what we achieve in a day, what we get done, what we're successful in, we're going to feel really, really anxious in motherhood because it's likely that just when we have something all set up, just when we have something all planned out, some weird little thing will happen with one of our kiddos that makes it that we can't actually get to that thing when we want to get to it. Yeah. Definitely. You can have all of the to-do lists in the world um, and it never happens how you want it to happen. I remember saying, I remember saying to myself when I was before children saying, oh, I had so much time before I had children. And at the time I was like, I don't have enough time to do things. And now I'm like, like, I had so much time before children. (laughs) I will tell you what's really interesting in the work I do is that when we learn how to bring our energy and attention back to the things that we actually have control over, we get all this time back. Mm. We get all this energy back. I did feel that when you were talking about the control thing, when there's only two things that you can control and then you're like, oh, cool. So all of this other crap that I've been trying to control I can't control it anyway, so I might as well not bother. So how, again, how freeing is that? It's so freeing. And so not only is it helpful for anxiety, because we need to feel in, humans need to feel in control. It feels scary to not feel in control, right? But what we can control is how deeply we breathe, 
What I can control is whether or not I'm paying attention to feeling the bottom of my foot on the floor or going to step outside and feel the sun on my face or whether or not I'm going to yell at my kid to stop yelling, which never works, right? It's worse. (laughs) It gets worse. Or whether I'm going to take a deep breath and get down at my kid's level and look him in the eye and say, you are really angry right now, aren't you? So when we do the things that we actually have control over, we feel better. So not only does it give us what we're looking for, but it makes us so that we can, to your point, let go of the time and energy that we're spending on all the things that are going to be fruitless for us anyway. Yep. And it is escalating, isn't it? We brought we mentioned exhaustion a lot of the time, and that's what it feels like. You're just exhausted, spiraling on this roller coaster all the time. Um, you've mentioned a few tools that listeners could use to help navigate those ups and downs, like breathing, grounding yourself, being putting your feet on the earth, on the sand, in the grass. I mean. I say that to my clients and some of them look at me like oh, weird hippie. It's true though. I, anyone who says that and I'm like, try it, take your shoes off and put your feet on the ground and see how that it's, feels. It's science. Yes, right? it is now, isn't it? So the way I describe it, I mean, there's two things. One is that, I mean, the, the, the best thing anybody can do in a time of stress is do a breath pattern where your exhale is a little bit longer than your inhale. You breathe in for three, you breathe out for four. You breathe in for four, you breathe out for five. Whatever your breath pattern is, that exhale being a little bit longer than an inhale sends the message to your brain that you are safe, that you are okay. We need to believe that we are safe and okay in order for us to be in a state of mind where that part of our brain, that frontal cortex, which is rational thinking, logical thinking, problem solving, creativity, all the freaking things we need to do in motherhood. In order to access that, we need to feel safe and steady in the moment, right? Because we don't need to be thinking rationally or problem solving when we're being chased by a bear or a cyber tooth tiger, right? So we have to tell our brain we're okay. This moment is okay. It's uncomfortable, but we're okay. So one of the best ways to do that is with that very simple breath pattern. Great thing to teach our kids as well, but that's really useful. I think what's really important to know is that, um, Oh, I lost my train of thought. What what did you say right before I went in that direction? I had something very, very important to say. Um, grounding, feet in the ground, how science behind it. Oh, yes. Thank you. Is that moments of disconnection with ourselves, the people around us, and our environment lead to a sympathetic nervous system response, fight, flight, and freeze. That is biological, our brains are wired that way because at the beginning of time, if we were disconnected and left by our tribe of people or our community, we would die, Mm. right? So moments of disconnection, big or small, lead to that fight, flight, or freeze response. Moments of connection to self, to the people around us or our environment, settle our nervous system, Turn in our, turn on our parasympathetic nervous system. So that's connection feet to the floor. 
That's connection, feeling the sun on your face. That's connection, giving someone a hug. That's connection, putting your hand on your own heart and telling yourself like, yeah, this is really hard. And of course you're angry, right? Self-compassion is a form of connection. So anything someone can do in a moment of distress that has to do with connecting with yourself, someone else, or the environment is going to settle your nervous system on the spot. When your nervous system is settled, you can access that part of your brain that's actually required to achieve anything, <laughs> right? I, lo- I love that. I love those tips. They're brilliant. Um, and I, I lost my train of thought too. It is that connection. I mean, you, you do always feel better, even though you don't feel like going out and talking to someone, you don't have to talk to them even. You just go out and do something. You do feel better. I mean, I think one thing I tell my clients all the time is go out and get yourself a coffee or a tea or go to the dog park or go for a walk in the neighborhood or go to the grocery store and look someone in the eye. And I mean, look them in the eye to the point where you can tell someone what color eyes they have. You don't have to say a word. That connection is like giving a bath to your nervous system. Wonderful. It's so powerful. And so we don't need to go out and quote unquote, be social. Some Mm. of us don't want to be social when we're feeling awful. That's not the point. But those moments of connection, the tiniest moments of connection are the ones that are going to, we will feel something shift in our body when we do that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. That's been wonderful. Really, really, really amazing interview. Um, is there anything that you want listeners to leave with any little pearls? I mean, I think what I want folks to know is that being successful or achieving great things is not a problem. And in fact, I hope that for everybody who's listening to your podcast, right? Because we find meaning in that, right? When we can be successful at what we set our minds to or achieve great things or be thought leaders or change makers in the world, like that is an incredible thing to be able to do. We can be so much more successful in those things when we come at them from a different place. When we learn how to tend to ourselves in that process, when we learn how to ground ourselves in the moments of distress and discomfort and unpredictability, when we learn how to stay steady in moments of chaos, we actually can excel beyond what we ever thought was possible. Not only that, but you mentioned this earlier and we won't go into it in this episode, but not only that, but in order to be the kind of secure attachments to our kids, the secure parents, the secure mothers that we want for our kids, we have to learn how to do that for ourselves. So many of us think, well, I need to find a way to get my kid to be less angry, to get my kid to pay attention more at school, to get that whatever problem we think we see in our kid, we put us high achievers, put all of our energy into fixing the problem for our kid. And the best way to help our kids feel and be different in the world is to learn how to tend to our own nervous systems. And when we do that, it's like magic what we see happen in our children. So it all come back, comes back to us giving ourselves permission to tend to ourselves. And again, I'm just going to say it. I sound like a broken record. High achieving, high successful moms think it's about 
doing things outside of ourselves. It's about fixing the things outside of ourselves that lead us to that feeling of success. And it is mind blowing when we can learn to shift that and tend to ourselves, everything else around us starts to shift and change in the way we want it to. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it does sound it. Um, Kate, thank you again for being a guest. I've loved having you. Um, And Bye for now, everybody. Thank you for listening. As always, please, um, if you have any questions, you can drop us an email at realtalkformums at gmail.com. Um, and I'm sure Kate will answer some if they some come through. Happy um, to answer questions. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, I'm, I'm also going to leave a link and contact details of how people can reach out to work with Kate as well. Um, so thank you again. And bye for now, everyone.